I'm Naomi Zevaloff, and this is a Vespucci story inspired by the life of my Peleg. The following contains sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. Paper leaflets, like birds, fly high above Jerusalem. One lands in Alicia's lap. He dips his head to read it, hiding his blushed reaction to the text beneath the large black cream of his traditional hat. It is the obligation of every Jew to keep his soul from punishment and stop this giant desecration of God's name next Thursday. The leaflet is a call to arms from religious extremists to prevent the Pride event from taking place in the holy city of Jerusalem. Elisha sits with classmates in a courtyard beside his religious school. He's only 15 years old and has never left his neighborhood. While the other boys joke about the pervert parade, Elisha is silent because he can't help but feel like they're laughing at him. Despite threats of violence and challenges from conservative parties and religious extremists, on the afternoon of July 30th, 2015, celebrations are underway for Jerusalem's 13th annual Pride event. The event is known as Love Without Borders. In the basement of a parking garage, Elisha changes his religious attire into an outfit more fitting of a secular teen, t-shirt, baseball cap, shorts. He nervously stuffs his religious clothing into a backpack and wraps his traditional hat with a plastic bag before hiding the items in an air duct. Then, he curiously heads into the city. He finds the streets packed, thousands of marchers with rainbow flags and painted faces. It's overwhelming for a teen who had hardly ever used the internet. Public displays of affection, flamboyant outfits, naked male chests, For Elisha, it's too much after a religious education of modesty. Whistles ring loud and drums bang. Symbolic same-sex marriages take place outside Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's home. The people chant for change and acceptance. Each step further into the parade, each joyful interaction with other marchers, sets Elisha at ease and makes him feel welcome. The same details that moments earlier intimidated him now fill him with the curious excitement of a new experience. He's enjoying himself. That is, until he sees a face in the crowd that he knows. In a counter-protest, one of his classmates from his religious school stands beside the man who distributed the hateful leaflets in his neighborhood. Elisha is sure his classmate recognizes him. He shields his embarrassed face as he passes. Did he see him? Suddenly, out of nowhere, horrified screams rip through the crowd. A man with a knife stabs marchers at random. The mood changes in an instant. The crowd jostles, throwing Elisha in all directions as people attempt to get away. He notices blood on his shirt and isn't sure if it's his own. Everything seems to slow to half speed. Elisha runs. He doesn't know where he's going, but he knows he cannot go back. 
escaping the crowd to a side street, Lisha sprints until he can't. He pauses to catch his breath and check for injuries beside the bar called Mikveh. He's unharmed, but that blood came from someone near him in the crowd. Tears run uncontrollably down his cheeks. He hears an unexpected kind voice. Are you okay? A woman on crutches approaches. She's staring at the blood specks on Alisha's shirt. Her dark hair swings across her face as she slowly makes her way towards him. The woman is Mai Peleg. News of the attack has not yet reached Mai. She asks again, Are you okay? Elisha doesn't have an answer. And so, he flees. A mikveh is the name of the pool of water in which observant Jews are required to immerse themselves, to cleanse before religious ceremonies or after menstruation. The ocean can be a mikveh. A river can be a mikveh. More commonly, it looks like a hot tub in a windowless spa. Mikveh bar looks nothing like any of these things. It's a visit here for many, cleanses the soul, and that is largely due to the bar's owner, Mai Peleg. Jerusalem's only official queer bar, Mikveh, is painted black. It has a musky smell of alcohol and cigarette smoke. Each night, as the sun sets over the holy city, the small venue becomes a haven for the city's LGBTQ plus community. Drug acts adorn the stage, Drinks flow between Israelis, Palestinians, and foreigners alike. Queer, lesbian, trans, gay, heterosexual, asexual, non-binary, whoever you are, Mai welcomes you. Mai's political activism led her to open Mikveh as a safe social place for those outcast from their communities, so they would never feel abandoned like she had. She was preparing Mikveh for the Pride celebrations, when Elisha appeared on her doorstep. She knew instantly that he was ultra-Orthodox. She noticed his hair, shaved short with long sideburns, which had pushed back behind his ears and tucked beneath his baseball cap. She knew he was trying to hide the curled sideburns which show his devotion to God, not yet ready to let go of that part of his identity. She recognized this because she had once done the same. I remember at the age of four, sitting at home, saying something is wrong in my body. As the years went by, this feeling grew and it was clear to me. I couldn't give it a name or define it, but I knew. I hated my body. Born in 1984 into an ultra-Orthodox family, Information about anything LGBTQ plus was severely limited and considered extremely sinful. Mai tried to confide in her mother, but that only made matters worse. Mai did not fit into her mother's binary beliefs about gender. It became unbearable when I mentioned that I would like to live as a woman. She would curse me daily, telling me that she wished me dead and was sorry for the day I was born. Mai's mother refused to see Mai as her daughter and always called her Jacob. At 13, Mai left to go to boarding school to get away from the woman who gave birth to her. But Mai was an outcast there too. The consistent rejection left Mai constantly searching for a place to call home. Now, 
all these years later, she had found it. She had made it herself. Mai is the center of a vibrant, loving community, and in many ways has become a figurehead and a mother figure. Her response to years of suffering and to the abuse she suffered at home and while living on the streets was to change the world for others. She became the first trans chairperson of Jerusalem Open House, the group who organized pride events and offers services for the LGBTQ community. The group had concentrated its effort on fighting for marriage equality and adoption rights, but Maya expanded this to basic needs, like the right to health care and the right to live with dignity. She created a suicide prevention protocol, which saved thousands of people from giving up. Little by little, she changed the world. Mai wants to lift everyone around her up, but she understands what it means to suffer. There are days when it's hard for her to feel anything else. She has fibromyalgia, a chronic neurological disease that causes even the slightest touch to feel intensely painful. Not only this, but every day she fights with depression, bipolar, and PTSD, a complicated mix of physical and emotional suffering. Due to her dissociative identity disorder, She owns multiple phones for the different personalities she experiences. For years, she tries to seek help from Israel's public health care providers. She went in and out of hospitals, but no doctor could use the psychological or physical pain. Recently, her fibromyalgia has been overwhelming. Some days she can barely move. A friend has to move her jaw to help her chew. Mai is only 30 years old, and yet... She knows she's going to end it soon. She feels it approaching. When she talks about it to her friends, she calls it her deadline. She's given them her instructions. She wants to be cremated and she wants her ashes to be divided in two, one half scattered into the sea, the other at the roots of an Ilawara flame tree, a fiery red tree with both male and female blossoms. She wants to die as she lived. Immortalized in the identity her mother tried to deny her. She refuses to be buried with her dead name. In 2015, on the night of the attack on Jerusalem's Pride event, when 16-year-old Shira Benke is brutally stabbed and murdered and six others injured by an ultra-Orthodox extremist, my grieves hard. The mikveh is full of ghosts that night. She keeps thinking about that boy in the alleyway. She knew all too well that lost look in his eyes, the terrified look of someone with nowhere to turn. In this stranger, Mai saw her young self. In the days following the pride attack, it stays on her mind. Memories from her past intertwine with fears for his safety. She wonders what he's doing, where he's been. Mai knows that she can't leave the world like this. She moves her deadline. She has to stay. At least for now. Weeks later, after being forced to shatter her beloved mikveh due to her health, Mai is clearing out a storage unit behind the bar when she sees a curled-up body. It's Elisha. Passed out dressed in the same clothes he had worn when she saw him after the Pride Parade. Startled, he apologizes to Mai and explains that his hideaway at the back of Mikveh was the only place he felt safe. 
He confides that he thinks he's gay and has been living on the street since the Pride event because his family refused to accept him and throw him out of the family home. My understands. No family support when she was younger also left her vulnerable. As a teen, she had lived in the corridors of apartment buildings, on street benches, inside slides at children's playgrounds, and finally in a place called Zula, which according to Mai, looked like a hostel for damaged youth, but was actually a place where older men sexually abused homeless teens. Mai wants something different for Alicia. When Mai was 10 years old, she wrote a letter. I'm looking for a family to adopt me. If you're willing, leave me a reply under the stairs. Mai went to an apartment building, a few blocks from her home, and posted a letter into one of the mailboxes. She'd return every day to that building, hoping to find a message left for her under the stairs. Every junk leaflet and piece of scrap paper gave her hope. I kept going there for a whole year, hoping that one day my savior would come. But they never did. Mai thinks maybe she can be that savior for Alicia. For Alicia, Mai walks streets she hasn't walked since she was a child, through a neighborhood whose inhabitants ignored her pleas for help. Mai had planned to go straight to Alicia's family home, but as she walks these familiar pathways, she finds herself drawn to an old route. The curtains are closed in her own parents' apartment. From across the street, Mai watches the tiny space in which she grew up. Through its small windows, Mai sees only darkness inside. No one is home. Mai is relieved. She had arrived there more out of habit than anything else, but as she turns to leave, Mai sees the woman who gave birth to her arriving back. Mai's made an effort to blend in wearing religious attire, but Mai's mother knows who she is. Mother and daughter share a brief look as they pass by, but no words are exchanged. Like rivals sizing one another up before fight night, Mai keeps walking. The door to Elisha's parents' home is slammed in Mai's face. Through the closed door, Mai tells the family of Elisha's situation, but it does little to create empathy for Elisha from his father. Mai is not disheartened, She saw something, a concerned look from Sarah, Elisha's mother, that implied the desperate need for news of her son. With this tiny speck of hope, Mai hunkers down in a small stone garden under the building. She knows the garden well. It was a refuge for her as a child. She waits patiently. She can still make out a narrow section of the neighboring building where she posted letters asking to be adopted. As darkness falls, Mai almost gives up. But as the light in the windows become more pronounced, Mai notices from time to time how a curtain twitches as someone watches her. It's Sarah. At around 11 p.m., after her husband falls asleep, Sarah sneaks out and gives Mai a phone number. She assures Mai that her husband is not a bad person and is obviously concerned for his son's welfare. It's just that Elisha's lifestyle is an abomination in the eyes of God. Mai has heard it all before from her own mother. Sarah claims that Elisha's new friends have manipulated him and planted nonsense in his mind. Only tough love 
will shake Elisha out of his face. She doesn't approve of Mai, and the look of disgust she gives her implies that she considers Mai to be one of those friends. Mai takes the contact number and leaves. It's a start. Their conversations begin as updates about Elisha. Yet over time, an unusual friendship is forged. Mai and Sarah talk only at night while everyone sleeps, always on the phone. The more Sarah gets to know her, the more difficult it becomes to match the demonic character she first imagined with Mai, the soft-spoken, full-of-life woman and activist who attentively listens to her each evening. Mai shares her own experiences in an attempt to help Sarah better understand Alisha. When I was 15, I went on the internet and I realized there was a name for the way that I was feeling. Transgender. And there were others like me. It was nice to give it a name, but the stories I read were so sad. Stories about social banishment, failed operations, prostitution. I said to myself, I'll do everything in my power to postpone this scary thing. Mai explains that she never decided to be transgender. Just like Elisha did not decide to be gay. No one chooses the harder path. And for Mai, it was a grueling path, along which she lost family and friends, was mocked and attacked when she did not yet pass as a woman, and was exhausted by the many surgeries and the visits to foreign doctors and the daily routine of hormone medications. In fact, Mai would argue that she did the exact opposite of deciding to be trans. In Mai's own words, to fit in, she first decided to try and survive as a man. It's like when I did my gender reassignment surgery. It was a dream come true, but I knew that my depression would never go away. It would get even stronger because of the hormones I needed to take and because of how society would ridicule me for being trans. But my feeling was that even if I die tomorrow, it would be worth it. This is me. I had no other choice. People tell me, since you went through the process, you look so good, and I did feel a great relief. But that doesn't mean that the scars I accumulated all my life are healing. For 27 years, I was a dead man. I'm still carrying him with me. Like almost all young Israelis, Mai was drafted into the military. While serving in the IDF, she fell in love with a woman called Hadas. Hadas and Mai got married and had children. Mai thought that so long as she was in love, she would feel whole. But she didn't. For a few years, Mai managed to fake it as a man, denying who she really was. But after their second child was born, Mai confided in Hadas that she wanted to go ahead with gender reassignment surgery at a facility in Thailand, since the procedure was not available in Israel. The revelation broke their marriage, but not at first. The children called her Moody, for Hamudi, meaning cutie, for a male in Hebrew. Mai corrected it to Muda. At first it was great. The kids told the neighbors, we're going to have two moms now, and I was so happy. But several months passed, and my ex decided she couldn't do it. She told me she wanted to break up and said I was traumatizing the kids. 
With the help of the social services, who warned me that if I went through with my operation, my parenting abilities would be brought into question, Hadass started a custody battle that ended with me not being allowed to see my children at all. From one mother to another, Maya assures Sarah that losing Elisha is far worse than accepting he is on a different path. Sarah is so moved by Mai that she affectionately calls her Muda, but she cannot bring herself to compromise her beliefs. Sometimes she leaves a bag of warm clothes, new slippers or a book for Elisha at a friend's shop in the neighborhood. Mai travels to collect them for him. On those journeys, Mai passes her parents' home and she sees her mother, briefly in the window, eating, talking on the phone, preparing for Shabbat. She wonders if her mother senses her there, but she never looks up. From afar, with each visit, Mai is able to view her mother anew. She's no longer a villain in Mai's story. She is little more than an insecure stranger. Mai starts to think that perhaps helping Elisha reconnect with his parents will ease the pain she feels. For a time, Mai gets a debilitating fibromyalgia under control in medication. She starts to allow herself to plan for her future. There is hope for seeing her children again. Sarah and Elisha are slowly building a bridge towards one another. Despite all her efforts, Mai is rejected yet again when she learns that her children will remain in her ex-wife's custody with no visitation rights. Her physical and mental health declines. She believes herself to be a rational person, but as she puts it, when the gap between the suffering and the will to live is so vast, the decision becomes clear. Suicide is not the objective. It's just a means to stop the suffering. Mai shares her suicide plans openly with her closest friends and with her adopted family, Sarah and Alicia. In moments of joy, when they see Mai laughing, they think perhaps she'd reconsidered again, but she reassures them with a sad smile. You couldn't be further away. And I am empty, empty, totally empty. In Israel, Funeral services, like weddings, are provided by the Orthodox Rabbanut establishment. Anything outside of the religion's strict burial rules is inherently difficult and near impossible to arrange. Still, Mai plans her secular funeral and contacts Israel's only crematorium, Alei Shalechet, a place so regularly attacked and vandalized by religious extremists that its location is kept secret and is constantly changing. Cremation is forbidden by Jewish law and further vilified by comparisons to the gas chambers. Mai holds on to her precise vision. Half her ashes in the Mediterranean and half at the roots of a tree with male and female blossoms so that her children will have a place to visit after she's gone. Mai meets with a lawyer detailing the specifics of her funeral so that no one, including her mother, can alter her plans. This is a normal territory for the lawyer, whom I know from the mikveh. He normally deals with animal welfare cases. But he understands that Mai's identity should be honored in death as in life and agrees to help. Since I have no contact in my biological family, 
And since I fear that after my death there will be those who try to obstruct my final wish with all kinds of arguments, I ask you to represent me in court and to be my voice. Like a ritual, Mai plans her death. She had imagined it to take place in nature, but she decides that a hotel room will make it easier for authorities to find and collect her body. Her belongings are divided into black trash bags and allocated to her friends. She creates a playlist that includes songs by her favorite queer rock band, The Witches, whose lyric Mai has tattooed on the back of her neck, In Eternity You'll Walk. She intends to read a stack of goodbye letters written by her loved ones, and her last supper will be a vegan burger. My will is to prevent the woman who gave birth to me from receiving my body or my ashes. I have a reason to believe that if my body ends up in her custody, she will bring it to a Jewish burial when the Jewish religion, despite my gender reassignment surgery and my medical transition, does not recognize me as a woman. This act will degrade my honor and erase my identity. On the night of November 14th, 2015, Elisha received a dreaded phone call from a mutual friend, letting him know that Mai took her own life. As Mai predicted, it was just hours from the time she was found dead in a hotel room to the moment her mother filed a legal claim to gain custody of her body with the intention of ignoring Mai's wishes and burying her in a traditional Jewish burial under the male name given to her at birth. Mai's mother, in court documents, referred to Mai as her son, claiming that Mai was not in his right mind when writing his will and arguing that family ties supersede Mai's new friendships. Jewish religious law requires the body to be ritually cleansed, wrapped in shrouds, and swiftly buried without a coffin. The seven days preceding burial, the Shiva, are to be days of mourning. In the days following Mai's death, many mourned, but no one could imagine the flood of support and attention Mai's plight would receive as news of the trial broke. Her right to die in her own identity would inspire not only the LGBTQ plus community, but anyone who cared about freedom and basic human rights. Condolences flooded Mai's Facebook page as her fight was broadcast across Israel and the world. The LGBTQ plus community rallied around Mai as she once rallied for them. All the while, Mai's body sat in police custody. After the ruling failed to provide Mai's biological family with their desired results, they appealed to Israel's Supreme Court, which only magnified the media attention. Mai's corpse remained in state custody in the morgue as the battle continued in the courtroom and played out across the stage of the internet. What makes a home? What constitutes a family? Is a family made up of the biologicals, as Mai referred to them? The group of people to whom you are genetically related? Or is a family made up of the one who accepts you unconditionally and holds your hand in times of need? On a gray autumn day, Sarah enters the courtroom in Jerusalem. On one side of the aisle, she sees familiar faces from synagogue. The religious community is standing by Mai's biological mother and family, 
on the other side of the aisle. Sarah sees strangers. She assumes are Mai's close friends. Elisha, Sarah's son, sits with these strangers. It's like an invisible war line has been drawn through the courtroom, separating the two sides. Sarah takes her seat. In the courtroom, all eyes are on three Supreme Court judges. They will decide if Mai's body will be transferred into her mother's custody and buried under a tombstone with her dead name carved into it. The room is at full capacity. The media is asked to leave as the verdict is read. Judge Handel clears his throat and reads it aloud. Peleg was in a full mental capacity at the time of writing her will, and the way in which she acted indicates a clear, strong desire. Her free will comes before the family's position. The judge acknowledges that while cremation is against Hebrew law, it is not against Israeli law, standing by Mai's wishes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, Tov shem mishem en tov, v'yom hamavet miyom ivaldo. A good name is better than precious oil, and the day of death better than the day of one's birth. Scholars interpret it to mean that only in death the sum of a person's actions is fully known. In Mai's death, her voice was heard clearly. On one side of the courtroom, Mai's biological mother mourns more than just a verdict. She grieves for the son she imagined she had. She's comforted by people who never accepted Mai. And across the aisle, a glimpse of change. Sitting with Mai's close friends from the LGBTQ plus community, looking very out of place, is one ultra-Orthodox mother, Sarah. She is there to support her son, Elisha. Her hand clasped firmly around his, and to show her support for Mai. Because without Mai's intervention, mother and son would have lost one another forever. Forever.